Good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started tonight. We're in Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, and we will pick up in verse 15 tonight. We did the first 14 verses last week, and we will pick up in verse 15 and go through the end of the chapter. So Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, there the word of Christ says this, If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him, and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out, and found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him, and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and went and threw him in prison, until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? In the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that you help us tonight, Lord, as we study your word. Lord, help us to understand, Lord, both uh, how to deal with sin properly and, Lord, also how to uh, be forgiving and uh, gracious to one another, Lord, that we might uh, practice both of these uh, disciplines, Lord, in the proper way and in the proper context. Uh, so, Lord, help us as we read your word tonight and as we study. Lord, we do pray that you would give us your mind, give us clarity and conviction, Lord, concerning these things and help us to know your will and, Lord, to conform our lives to those things that are pleasing to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. So here we're in this uh, passage where Jesus has been dealing with His own disciples regarding uh, this issue that arose about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And He used this opportunity to teach them about humility, about the necessity of being like a child in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that we have to have a proper view of ourselves, right? And we can't have an inflated, arrogant, proud view and be seeking to exalt ourselves over and against our brother, but rather we should have the 
a humble view of ourselves and be servants toward one another. Uh, this also led him to deal with stumbling blocks, right? Temptations to sin, that these things are inevitable and that they will come, but we should not be the source of sin and temptation to our brothers, even to one of these little ones who believes in the name of Christ. We should not cause them to sin or be a stumbling block, and if we are, it would be better for us to be cast into the sea. Then he showed how uh, much God desires the salvation of his elect, in that uh, he rejoices as much uh, over the finding of one lost sheep uh, whenever one uh, sinner is converted, whenever he believes, whenever he is found. And it is not the desire of God that any of the little ones should perish, but all of them shall enter into eternal life. Now, in verses 15 to 20, here he deals with these issues related to sin within the church, sin within the church and amongst believers, amongst one another, and how it is that we ought to deal with these things. And this is uh, one of the key passages that teach the process of church discipline and how it should be practiced within the church and then even interrelationally, right, amongst one another. Because, as he said earlier, stumbling blocks are sure to come, right? None of us are perfect. We all have the flesh, which means that we will commit offenses one against the other. Whether that be in the home, the husband against the wife, the wife against the husband, the parents against the children, in the workplace, right, in the church, wherever we have relationships, because of the flesh, there are going to be issues of sin that arise, and when they do, then it needs to be dealt with in the proper way, and even within the church, this is going to happen, and so he's talking about teaching how we should handle these things in a proper way, okay, and so we need careful examination of this passage to see what he's saying, what he's not saying, uh, because there are many misconceptions concerning this passage. And we want to understand correctly what it is that our Lord Jesus is teaching. So let's begin there in 15. He says, If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Here, the issue is, if your brother sins. Right? If your brother sins. Now, the, the question is, who defines sin? Do we define sin with our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own understanding? Or do we have to go to Scripture? So it has to be sin according to the Word of God. Right? According to the Word of God, some obvious sin, something that is there clearly defined in the Bible that is a sin that needs to be dealt with. Okay? So it is an actual sin, not some uh, opinion of mine, not some preference of mine, not, well, I like to do it this way and you like to do it. There are some things that are indifferent, that one may do it one way, one may do it another. One may want to eat meat, another one may want only vegetables. That's fine. Do whatever you want in your own home. One person may drink only water, another person may drink some wine, another one may want to have a Dr. Pepper every once in a while. That's fine if you want to do that. Here we're talking with issues of sin as defined by the Bible. So something that the Bible clearly lays out as a sin, and this sin is being committed, then this is the occasion for the confrontation. 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, in verse 4, defines what sin is. 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So some violation of the law of God, of the law of God that is taught and laid out in Scripture. So if the brother sins, 
then this is the situation that arises. Also, it assumes that this sin is unrepentant, unrepentant sin. Because if he's repenting, if he's trying to overcome it, then there's no need to confront him. But here, the sin is of an unrepentant nature. So we're not talking about daily sins, right? Daily sins that we're aware of, that we're trying to overcome, that we're talking about, that other people know about, and that we're seeking to overcome these types of things, right? Otherwise, every time someone sins, we'd have to have a 10-hour meeting. And that's not a proper way to function within the church, right? So, of course, we all have sin. We all have a proclivity, one to this, one to another. And many people, they're aware of that. They're working on it. They're trying to overcome it, right? So every single sin that ever is committed does not necessitate this lengthy process or hours and hours of meetings and this type of procedure and protocol. When there are daily sins that we're aware of, that we're working on, that we're trying to overcome, we should be aware of it. We should be talking about it with others. They should be talking about it with us. And then if that thing arises, then we encourage one another to continue to fight, to continue to overcome those types of things, right? So it has to be something that is an actual sin and something also that the brother is not repenting of, not repenting of and not uh, nitpicking every little fault or every little detail of the life of people. Otherwise, it's going to lead to misery within the church, and everyone's going to be walking on eggshells, okay? So it has to be an actual sin, right? An actual sin as defined by the Bible, right? We should not have, if we're driving down the road and we're going 65 and someone else who is a brother is going 66, well, they're speeding. They're going one mile over the speed limit. Does that necessitate the starting the process of church discipline? No, right? Right. Of course not. Of course not. That would be ridiculous to do those types of things. Also, it should not be on the basis of evil suspicion. Evil suspicion, right? Where we're assuming evil about people and assuming that everyone is living in sin, right? That everyone is not taking the things of God seriously. We shouldn't have this kind of disposition toward our fellow brothers, but rather we should have a favorable a gracious opinion of them unless something comes to our attention that is a known actual sin defined by the Bible and then even we need to investigate it and look and find and make sure that we're interpreting the issue correctly, right? And that we are properly understanding things. Again, this can be a problem as well in the church that we can be prone to evil suspicion where we are assuming the worst about everyone and assuming that they're committing many, many sins all the time when this isn't the case. 1 Timothy chapter 6 warns about evil suspicion. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. 1 Timothy 6, 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their master must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. 
but he has a morbid interest in controversies, in controversial questions, in disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So one of the marks of these false teachers is not only their doctrine, but also the controversy, right? The controversy that they're constantly embroiled in, right? They have abusive language, their envy, their strife, always causing strife, and there's evil suspicions, evil suspicions of others, right? In the way that they're viewing them, in the way that they are relating to them. So we shouldn't be like this, but rather we should be gracious toward one another. We should have a favorable opinion of one another unless there is evidence to the contrary. And then if there is evidence, then we should deal with it. Right? Then we need to deal with it in that way. So we don't want to look for sin when there is no sin, as if we're on the hunt and prowl to find fault with everyone. And we shouldn't be nitpickers, right? We know nitpickers, right? People who are constantly carping on other people, right? Looking and finding fault with every little thing that they do. So that's not what he's talking about here, but he's talking about actual sin, actual sin, which also necessitates investigation, that we have to understand what is going on. There has to be actual proof and verification that a sin has been committed. So we have to gather facts. We have to gather information to make this assessment. Right, Proverbs chapter 17, Proverbs 17 and verse 15. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Justifying the wicked and condemning the righteous, both are an abomination to God. So we should be very careful not to do either of those, not to justify wicked men, nor to condemn those who are righteous, who are not committing sin. So we have to look at it, examine everything, make sure that we are interpreting the facts correctly. Also, this does not mean it's a one-way street, right? This does not mean it's a one-way street. The point being, if you think your brother is in sin and you go to him, he has the right to explain himself. He has the right to talk to you and to explain because it's possible that we may be misinterpreting what's going on. Isn't that a possibility that we could think that there's sin, but actually there isn't sin? And he has the right to defend himself and make a case for his own innocence in the matter if he truly is innocent. So, for example, I may be driving down the road and Sam passes me going 100 miles an hour. And I think, what is wrong with this man? He's breaking the law. He's putting his own life in jeopardy. He's putting everyone else's life in jeopardy. Right? Why is he doing this? And if I go to him and accuse him of sin, and then he tells me, well, uh, one of the kids had a serious accident and we were rushing him to the hospital because the ambulance couldn't come and it was a matter of life and death. That's why I was doing that. Well, doesn't that give a different light to the issue? Right? It's completely different. It's one thing that if he's doing this just carelessly, 
but now there's more information and it's like, okay, then that's not a problem because that's what the ambulance does, right? They drive that way and it's an issue of life and death. So it was necessary for him to do so. So in that case, then you step back and you say, okay, it was clear. It makes sense. You don't come initially accusing him of sin. You come trying to gather information, right? Gather the facts and make sure you understand everything that is going on. And he has the right to explain and to defend himself in that case. So if we think someone is in sin and we go to them, it doesn't mean that they don't get to speak, that they don't get to say what's on their mind, or that they don't get to give an explanation for what is going on, because it's possible that we may be misinterpreting the issue. Acts chapter 25. Acts 25, verses 15 and 16. Acts 25, verse 15, actually 14, says, While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them, that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face, and has an opportunity to make his defense against their charges. So the accused has the opportunity to make his defense. Right? The first to present his case seems right until another comes along and examines him. So the one being charged with sin should have the opportunity to make a defense, right? not an unjust defense. If he is committing sin, then he needs to fess up to it. He needs to admit it and say, yes, you are right. Yes, I have done this sin, and it is wrong, and I need to repent. But there may be some issue that we don't know about. So before we charge with sin, we need to make sure that we understand the issue, make sure that we have the evidence, that we have the Scripture on our side, before we go and accuse someone of sin. So here we're talking about an actual sin. It has been investigated. Indeed, he is committing a sin, and therefore you need to go and show him his fault, here he says, in private. In private, right? Not before others. You don't bring it out into the open initially. The first step is that you go to him in private. And here, this is a private offense. If the offense is private, if he sins against you in private, then you go and address him in private. And then if he repents, everything is resolved. And no one else needs to know about it. Right? That's the end of the matter, and that's it. Then you move on, and there's nothing else left to discuss. Everything is resolved, and no one else needs to know. Right? We should not be spreading and going and talking to and fro about these types of issues, these sins, if it's handled between the two people. Right? Why do I need to go tell all these other people about what happened if I have truly forgiven him and if he's truly repented? Then there's no need for it to go any farther. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. Galatians 6, 1 to 5. Galatians 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 
Bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. But if anyone thinks he's something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. For each one must examine his own work, then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So there, if someone is caught in a trespass, those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Do it in gentleness, not beating him over the head, not ridiculing him, not saying, how could you be such an idiot, right? I would never do this. Why would you? No, we shouldn't be like that. We should be humble. We should be gentle. We should be loving and kind toward them. And if we are arrogant, then you better be careful because you too might be tempted, right? If anyone thinks he's something, if anyone thinks he stands, like take heed lest he falls. If we think we're something when indeed we're actually nothing, then we are in for a rude awakening. And that's the way that we should be. We should bear each other's burdens. This is to fulfill the law of Christ, but we should do it in the proper way. And here, the proper way is with gentleness, right? Not yelling at them, not screaming at them, not cursing them, not beating them over the head with a sledgehammer, none of those kinds of things. And if he repents, then you've won your brother. You've won your brother. You've won him over, and he has indeed recognized his sin. He's repented of his sin, and then that's good for him. It's good for him. It's good for everyone. And now this breach that was in the relationship because of the sin, it's no longer there. Okay, The sin is gone, and there is a restored and reconciled relationship. And then that should be the end of the matter. Proverbs chapter 17. Not that we may not talk about these things in terms of edification, in terms of help for one another, or help towards someone else who's dealing with an issue, but we shouldn't bring it up in terms of accusing and condemning them anymore. If they've repented and if we've offered forgiveness, then we should not bring up their sins and throw them in their face in order to put ourselves above them, right? That's the end of the matter, and that would be an evil thing to do. Proverbs 17, 9, He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. He who conceals a transgression seeks love. Now, conceals it after repentance, right? He doesn't mean hiding sin, hiding transgression, right? If someone's a bank robber and I find out about it, that I'm hiding it from the police so that they don't go to jail. No, he can't mean that. But he's talking about if someone repents, he conceals it. He conceals it because it doesn't need to go any further. But the one who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. A person that goes around and talks with others and who don't need to know, then it's going to cause problems, right? It's going to cause problems and wreak havoc in the church. Okay, now another point in terms of verse 15. Here, <clears throat> he begins with a private offense. A private offense, and if the sin is in private, then the confrontation begins in private. Now, this does not mean that every sin, the confronting of every sin, must begin in private. Right? If the sin is public at the beginning, then it needs to be dealt with publicly. Right? It needs to be dealt with when whatever level it arises in its initial, uh, in the way it was committed initially. So, to what extent the sin is manifested, then to that extent it needs to be addressed in the very beginning. So, if it is private, then it's one on one. 
you deal with it in that way. But if the sin involves three or four people, then it needs to involve three or four people, right? Everyone that it involves needs to be involved in the dealing with the sin. If the person committed sins against three or four people, or if it's a group sin that was committed in a group, then it needs to be dealt with within the group, right? With all of them, right? In the proper way. If it's a sin that is public in relation to the church, then it needs to be dealt with publicly in relationship to the church, right? This is the way that it should be dealt with. So whatever way it manifests itself and wherever the sin touches, then it needs to be dealt with in all of those aspects, okay? So for example, say there are two young people and the two young people are fornicating and a person, uh, a friend finds out about it and the friend finds out and this is indeed true and confronts them. Well, the parents need to know about what's been going on. And if the friend goes and tells the parents that this is what is happening, that friend is not violating Matthew 18, 15 to 18 because it needs to be known because it involves the parents, right? They're living under their home and so it needs to be known to them so that they can deal with it properly and follow up properly because it's their own children that are doing these things, right? It shouldn't just be the children and then if oh, they say, okay, we repent, then we don't go and tell anyone. And I say this because this is how many people behave. They don't tell and they're not open with the people who need to know about the sin, right? And if it's happening in the home, the parents need to know. If it's happening in the church, the pastor needs to know. Wherever it's happening, those who are in authority or who have some relation to it, they need to know about what's going on so that it can be properly dealt with, right? And to expect someone who comes to us personally to expect them to confess or to make known their sin to someone who is in authority over them, that is not a violation of this, but that's what is to be expected, right? So if someone from another church comes to me and confesses some sin that they're committing, well, then I should expect them to tell their pastors. I should expect them to tell those that are in authority over them within their own church or over their own family, right? So if it is public initially, then it needs to be dealt with publicly in its first dealing, okay? Now, the example would be Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, <clears throat> when this sin is committed, the Apostle Paul deals with it publicly there on the spot. He doesn't go and talk to Cephas in private because the nature of the sin was public. So he immediately deals with it publicly. Galatians 2, <clears throat> verse 11 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, and when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here, this sin was committed in the presence of all. It was committed publicly, and so the apostle confronted it publicly. Right? He even says such. He said it in the presence of all to him. So he didn't take him to the side, to a private room. He didn't ask for a private meeting and then address it there. But because it was happening publicly and the public nature of the sin was causing others to be carried away in it, he dealt with it there in the presence of everyone. 
Now, did the Apostle Paul violate Matthew 18, 15? Because he didn't deal with it privately. No, because it wasn't a private sin. It was a public sin. So it needed to be dealt with publicly. Now, I say that because many times people will criticize uh, us for saying things about teachers, public teachers, uh, preachers, especially popular ones, in certain things that they say or certain things that they do, and ask, have you ever met with them? Have you talked to them privately? Well, one, how can I talk to them privately? <laughs> because they're celebrities. But secondly, once they're putting it out publicly, right, over the internet or over the airwaves, then it's no longer a private issue. It's a public matter, right? It's open to debate and criticism in that way. Okay, then here in Matthew chapter 18, 15, it says, if he listens, right, if the facts have been presented, the scripture proofs have been given to provide the context, and he says, yes, this is indeed right. I have committed sin. This incident didn't happen. I see the scriptures that you've pointed out, and they clearly say that this is a sin, and he listens means he repents. He says, I, I've done wrong. He repents. He confesses his sin to God. And then whatever he needs to do to make amends, that is what he does, right? Whatever steps are necessary. Then you've won your brother, right? You won him over in this matter, and it's good for him, right? It's a real benefit to you and to him as well. Proverbs 17, verse 10. Proverbs 17, verse 10. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Right? So the rebuke goes into one who has understanding. And it goes deeper into him because it goes into his heart than a fool who gets a hundred blows. Because the fool, though you beat him on his back with a hundred blows, you can't change his heart by beating him. Right? You can change his behavior maybe, but you can't change his heart. But the one with understanding... It touches his heart, it affects him there, and then it leads to true repentance. An example of this would be 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12. And verses 1 to 15. 2 Samuel 12, 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And he was like a daughter, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. 
have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes, and give them into your companions, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And did you, indeed you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, because uh, by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. So there Nathan confronted the sin of David, and he won his brother. Right In that David agreed. He said, yes, I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan assured him of God's forgiveness, but also of the consequences of his sin. Right. Though forgiveness was given, it did not mean that there were no consequences <clears throat> because of the sin, <clears throat> which will be true in our case as well when we're dealing with people. Right? Forgiveness doesn't mean no consequences. Okay, so that's verse 15. Also, we should say the other side of this equation, it, this assumes here that the person who has committed the sin is unaware of their sin or their they're in an unrepentant state like David was. He had committed the sin, but he had not repented of the sin. Though certainly he knew about what he had done, and certainly it was gnawing on him, he had not yet repented fully the way that he needed to. So Nathan came to him to jolt him, to jar him out of his stupor and to bring the confession out of him. Now, on the other side, if we come through our own uh, prayers, our own conviction, reading of Scripture, that it hits us, that we have committed a sin against someone, then what should we do? Should we wait for them to come to us or should we go to them? We should go to them, right? We should go to them according to Matthew 5, 21 and 26. If we're there, even if we're there at the altar about to offer our gift and we're aware, we come to this understanding that we have sinned against our brother. Our brother has something against us. He says, leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift at the altar. So if we become aware that we've committed a sin against someone else, then we should take the initiative to go and to deal with it in a prompt manner, quickly, right? Quickly and be reconciled with our brother. Okay, and then verse 16. What do you do if he doesn't listen? If he does listen, then we're done. But if he doesn't listen, then verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he doesn't listen, then you have to take two or three more with you. Two or three more, which also entails that you have to talk to those people. They have to be aware of what's going on, which people will say, well, that's gossip. It's not gossip if it's true, right? If this is truly what's taking place, then of course you have to talk about it with other people in order to come to the right understanding and agreement of the issues. So you take the two or three more together with you in order to increase the severity to shock them out of their sin. Because if they won't listen with just one, well, if there's two or three with you, then maybe that'll cause them to listen, right? That may be what is needed in order to jolt them out of their sin. Because when people are entrenched in their sin, 
gripped by their sin, it, they must be jolted out of it, right? And sometimes it takes very serious measures to cause that to happen. And here, two or three people coming to you, pleading with you, confronting you in your sin may do the trick, right? And every fact must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 1. Okay, then, if he listens to them and repents and acts upon it, then you've won your brother with the two or three, and then that's the end of the matter, right? That's the end of the matter. But if he doesn't listen, then what do we do next? Then it comes to the third step. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and tax collector. Right? If he refuses to listen to them, then you have to tell it to the church. Now this entails that he hasn't flown the coop, that he hasn't fled to the other side of the uh, world. Right? At which, at which case, you would need to tell it to the church, but you're not telling it with him there. You're not trying to restore him or be reconciled to him because he's made it known and obvious that he doesn't want anything to do with you and he's gone. But if he's still willing to listen, if he is not willing to be put out of the church, then you bring it before the church, right? You bring it before the church and you address it in that way. So long as he is still repentant, right? Showing some contrition, some humility, some willingness to overcome his sin. Again, now many times when it rises to this level, the people run away as fast as they can. In which case, there's nothing you can do. We can't go and drag them, force them to come before the church. We can't even go and drag them and force them to come before two or three people. If they don't want to come, then we're not going to go in a clandestine way into their house in the middle of the night and jump on them and make them listen to us. right? If they're unwilling to listen, then you wash your hands of them. Their blood is on their own head. This assumes that they're willing to listen and that they're willing to at least have the humility to be contrite enough to listen to you and open the Bible and are willing to listen to reason. So here in verse 17, you tell it to the church. So long as he's repentant and trying to overcome and they're willing to submit to the authority of the church. If they're willing, then we keep working with them. We don't cast them away. We don't throw them away. But as long as they're willing to admit it, they're trying to overcome it, they're doing what we ask them to do, they're taking it seriously, then we continue to bear with them, be patient with them, seeking to restore them and bring them along in that way. But if they are unwilling to listen to the church, then you treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning as a heathen or an unbeliever, because they're manifesting at that point that they're not a true convert, a true believer through their sin. So now you treat them in that way as an outcast or as uh, uh, as a Gentile, as a tax collector in that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this would entail removal from the church. Removal from the church, from the assembly, and also barring them from the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. 
You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, must, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So, here this man who is unrepentant in this sin of having his father's wife, which is a great sin, one that even the Gentiles aren't doing, and the church is tolerating him and not dealing with it. And he tells them he needs to be put out. He's not repenting. He's not willing to put her away and cease having this incestuous relationship. Therefore, he needs to be removed from the church. Right? Removed so that he's not permitted to come to the assembly, to the gathering, to worship, to the Lord's Supper, and treat him like an unbeliever. Have nothing to do with this wicked and perverse man. Also, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians three fourteen. Second Thessalonians three fourteen. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there he says, don't associate with him to put him to shame. Right. But the purpose of this is what so that He will be restored. So there's always that desire and prayer, a willingness for Him to be restored. And hopefully the shame that comes upon Him will lead to restoration. Or Him being handed over to Satan, put out into the world, will lead Him to come to His senses. And in 2 Corinthians, He does talk about the punishment inflicted is sufficient and that the brother should be welcomed back. It doesn't say that... It, uh, necessarily was the man from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but many commentators take it that way, that this man came to his senses, repented, and then the apostle was saying, what you've done is sufficient, now you need to welcome him and receive him back in that way. Okay, so that's how it should be dealt with in terms of church discipline. First, one-to-one. Secondly, two or three. Then third, bring it before the church. And then if he won't listen to the church, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. And the purpose is for the purity of the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If the man is committing unrepentant sin, 
and he's in the church, then that sin is going to spread throughout the church. So it's for the purity of the church, for the glory of Christ, right? Because it brings shame upon the gospel whenever one of the church members is committing a sin that even the Gentiles don't do, right? Isn't that a very shameful thing to bring upon ill repute upon the gospel of Christ? And then ultimately, it's also for the good of the person, for his own soul and for his salvation, because sometimes it takes tough love, right? We have to do that with our children, and we have to do it within the church as well in order for there to be the overcoming of sin. The flesh, the power of the flesh, the power of the world and the devil are very, very strong, and it takes serious dealing with sin for us to overcome these things, and that's what the apostle is arguing for, or that's what Jesus is teaching us here. Then verse 18, Truly I say, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Here, this is for the comfort of the church whenever they're going through these issues of church discipline. He's giving them the confirmation that if you're doing this according to the Word of God, a real sin has been committed. You have the evidence on your side. You have the Scriptures on your side. You're following the proper procedures and protocols. Right? Everyone's going to say that you're being mean, you're being unloving, you're being very harsh and bitter. But here he's assuring us that if you do this correctly and you bind this man in judgment on earth, then what you are doing is in agreement with what God has already done in heaven. And if you lose this man and say your sins are forgiven, what you're doing on earth is in agreement with what God has already done in heaven, if you're doing it the right way. So that is for our comfort, for our consolation, whenever we are dealing with these matters, which are very serious and important matters. Then 19, Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Here, specifically, we're talking about the issue of church discipline. And two or three are going together, and, and the church as well. Well, if two or three of you are in agreement on these matters, according to Scripture, then God is there with you. He's with you. He's in your midst. Right? Don't be alarmed. Don't be frightened. Don't think that God is not on your side. No, He's there. He is with you. And he is in your midst. Or also, this would be true generally speaking. If we are gathering together with God's people, and there's two or three of us, is Christ there with us? Yes, he's with us. If we're gathering for prayer, if we're gathering for Bible study, if we're gathering for fellowship, if we're gathering like we are tonight with 20 or 30 of us, well, Christ is there with us, right? He's with us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us, even if it's a small group. Right, even if the remnant is two or three, well, Christ is there with them. Right? Though over here at this false church, there's 20 or 30,000. And we think, well, Christ isn't with us. He's with them because they've got a $20 million building and they've got all these people and all the, this, uh, gr these great things. No, that's not the case at all. If we're gathered together truly in the name of Christ and we're taking the things of God seriously, then He is there with us. Right? That is our comfort and our consolation in this life. Okay, then verse 21. What about forgiveness? Right, what about forgiveness? Because this is the aftermath of repentance. Right, if the brother repents, you've won your brother, and there should be forgiveness. Right, and we should have a willing, ready attitude to forgive. Right, this is the way that we should be. Okay, then verse 23, or verse 21. <clears throat> 
Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Here, uh, the tendency that we have is often to minimize our own sins against God and to maximize whatever sin someone commits against us. To take sins and offenses against us as far more serious than our sins against God. How many times does God forgive us in the course of our life? Is it 70 times 7 times? Or is it 7,000 times 7,000 times? How, who knows how many times? Because we have daily sins, do we not? And is God forgiving toward us when we commit sin after sin after sin after sin after sin against Him all the time? He forgives us. Well, then how can we have a more strict judgment against our brother than what God has against us? Shouldn't we be like our Heavenly Father? Shouldn't we forgive the way that God forgives? Well, He forgives us even though we commit many sins against Him. So we ought to do the same toward our brothers. And that's why Peter says, should we forgive up to seven times? Which sounds very magnanimous, very gracious. And Jesus says, no, but seven, 70 times seven, which is a never-ending number. That's what he means here. Not that we get, count out 490 sins and then 491, then I don't have to forgive you. That's clearly not what he means. He's using this as a way of speaking, meaning that we forgive whenever it's necessary. As often as it is necessary, when there is repentance, we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. Right? If we're not living like this, the, first of all, the home is going to be a miserable place because do we not sin against one another? But if we are carping on one another, if we are having this bitter, harsh attitude toward one another, then it's going to be misery in the home. The husband and wife are going to be at odds. The children are going to be at odds. And no one's going to want to live there. And then in the church, we're going to commit sins against one another. And if we have this harsh spirit toward one another, unforgiving spirit toward one another, it's not going to be good for anyone. So we should be willing and ready to forgive every offense on every occasion, always, right? Now, again, he doesn't mean forgive without repentance, right? Of course, there has to be repentance, but we should be willing to forgive, ready to forgive, desirous to forgive. And if the brother repents, then we forgive him. And if he sins again, then we forgive him. This is the way that we should be. Now, the illustration, 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Here, this parable is being used to describe the nature of the kingdom of heaven and how we should be toward one another. Both how it is that God is toward us, and then when we understand rightly what God has done for us in terms of forgiveness, that should lead, without God even having to say it, it should lead us to do this toward one another. Right? That's what the king expects of this slave. That just as I was gracious to you, you should have been gracious to others, and no one should have to tell you to do these things. It should be natural for you to extend grace and mercy just as you have received. Right? Just as you have received. Here, this king is settling his accounts, 
And this one owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, which, again, there's not exact precision in terms of what that measure is, but uh, some measurements are that a talent is about 20 years' wages. 20 years' wages, and he owes 10,000 of them. Now, is this a, this is, the point being is, Jesus is saying this in a hyperbolic fashion. This is an enormous, extravagant, impossible debt for anyone to pay. It would be like you owing someone $3 billion, right? You, you can never pay that off, right? It's impossible. And is this not true in terms of our debt toward God, our sins toward God? Can any one of us ever pay the debt of sin we owe to God? It is an insurmountable debt that we can never pay. The only hope we have is for it to be forgiven, right? For it to be wiped away and for God not to hold us accountable. We can't pay it ourselves, but God can pay it for us through the person and work of Christ. Okay, so this man owes an insurmountable debt, a very, very large sum of money. Then verse 25, But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife, children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Here, the slave, when he hears this sentence, this judgment against him, he falls to the ground, he pleads with him, Have patience, have mercy on me. He begs him, I'll, Whatever it takes, I'll repay you everything that I owe. Then verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and released him, and forgave him the debt. Here, the Lord of the slave has great compassion. When he sees the man with the humility, we sees him prostrate himself in, the, in this way, he absolves his debt. He wipes it away. He forgives him of this great debt that he has, and does not exact it in the way that he could. This is compassion and his mercy toward him. And when God is compassionate to us in this way, shouldn't the natural response be for us to be compassionate toward one another? If God forgives us in this way, then shouldn't we be forgiving toward one another? And will an offense ever committed against us rise to the level of severity as our offenses against God? It's impossible. So there's no way that anyone can ever sin against you and that sin be greater than our own sin against God. Impossible, okay? So is God expecting us to do for one another more than He does for us? No, it's lesser. So can we do it? Right? And do we all appreciate the mercy of God, the compassion of God? Everything depends upon that. So we have benefited greatly from the compassion and mercy of God just as this slave benefited greatly from the compassion and mercy of his master. Okay, then verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. Here the slave, after he had received such mercy, went out, found his fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii is about a day's wages, and that's a significant amount to owe someone a hundred days' wages. But in comparison to the 10,000 talents, it is nothing, right? It's a drop in the bucket compared to what he had just received. And yet, now he's demanding 
of his fellow slave to pay me back whatever you owe. And when the man can't pay, he begins to choke him and say, pay what you owe. Then verse 29, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Isn't this exactly what he had just done? He fell to the ground. He began to plead with his master, have mercy, have patience. I'll repay you everything. Everything is playing out in exactly the same way, except with one difference. He is a very bitter man. He is a very harsh man. He's an exacting man, this slave, and he's not learned from the compassion of his master. Verse 30, But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So, he is unwilling. No compassion, no mercy, no forgiveness, only exacting what is owed. Then verse 31, When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. The fellow slaves, when they see this, what has transpired, they know about what this man received. They know about the debt that he had been forgiven, and then they've seen the way that he's treated his fellow slave. It really bothers them, right? They're deeply grieved at what they saw, right? How could this man do this? So this is not a slight matter. When we are unforgiving in this way, this is a very serious and a very grave matter, and it should trouble us. For there to be such a thing as an unforgiving Christian, what a contradiction. What a contradiction for someone to claim to be a Christian and yet to not be willing to forgive and to extend forgiveness and be reconciled to their brother. Right? A person that is like that is thinking that they are more righteous than God, that the debts against them are greater than their debts against God. This is the way that they're thinking. Right? This is why it is so troubling, right? such an evil thing to do. So they go and they tell the Lord, about what has happened. Then 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Here, doesn't the king expect that the slave would learn from his example? Though he didn't tell him when he forgave him, Hey, I'm forgiving you this debt, and if anyone owes you a debt, you should do the same. He shouldn't have to say that. It's so obvious and plain that it's self-evident that you should be doing this toward your fellow slave. How can you be so blind, so hard-hearted, so cold to receive such grace and mercy for me and then to be unwilling to give it to your fellow slave? You are not like me at all. You should have learned from my example, which makes his sin even more aggravated. And so it is with those who claim to be Christians but who are unforgiving, right? They say that they have received the forgiveness of God. They have some knowledge of sin, some knowledge of forgiveness, but it doesn't go into their heart, right? They don't truly understand it by the way that they behave. So what's going to happen to him? Verse 34, And the Lord moved with his anger, handed him over to the torturers, until he should repay all that was owed him. So, and that's never going to come to an end because he's never going to be able to repay it all. So he's going to be tortured forever. That's the point. Eternal damnation, eternal punishment for those who will not forgive. Now, what is the conclusion? My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So is forgiveness a gospel issue? No doubt. 
Is it essential or non-essential? It's essential. If you don't forgive, you'll go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. This is what God will do to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. So this is a moral issue, a moral heresy if someone is unforgiving. It will send them to hell. So we shouldn't be like this. Rather, we should be willing and ready to forgive our brothers. Or to forgive our brothers. John, or Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verses 14 to 15. Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You forgive others, and the Father will forgive you. Not that our forgiveness of others is the basis of God's forgiving us. Right? We love Him because He first loved us. We love our brothers because He first loved us. We forgive others because He first forgave us. But if His forgiveness to us does not lead to us being forgiven toward our brother, then it shows that we don't have the forgiveness of God. Right? His love to us will overflow with love for one another. That's the point. Right? We, he loves us. We love Him. Then we love the brethren. And if we don't love the brethren, then it shows that we don't love God, which shows that God doesn't love us, right? That's the point that he's making here. So forgiveness is a matter. It is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit of a true believer. And if we don't have that fruit, then it shows that we're not a part of the faith, right? That we do not belong to Christ. So we must be forgiving, forgiving, willing to forgive. Also, one last point to make. A common misconception. Forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean no consequences. Forgiveness does not mean complete forgetting of everything that happened. That's what many people want. Oh, you forgave me. Meaning that you can't, uh, there's no consequences or there's no repercussions concerning what has happened. Right? It can't be that way. Right? It can't be that way. If uh, in the marriage relationship, one of the partners is unfaithful, commits infidelity, then, and they repent and they ask for forgiveness, then the one that was sinned against should forgive them. But that doesn't mean that they don't have the right to ask them, uh, you know, if they're not home immediately after work, where did you go after work, right? Because of the sin that's been committed. It takes time to rebuild trust, right? It takes time to overcome that. For there to be expectations of openness and honesty in that way, Right? It doesn't mean that in well, the other one who committed the sin can't get offended and say, oh, you're just holding my sin against me. No, <laughs> you committed adultery. Therefore, I don't trust you. Right? And until time goes by that I can trust you, then I want to know where you're at. I want to know what you're doing. Right? I want to have some tracker on your phone so I can keep track of you and, and know where you're at to, to make sure that it doesn't happen again. That's not being unforgiving. Right? Yes, we are forgiving in that we restore the relationship, but there's still, you have to regain trust and you have to work through it and those things are necessary. And an example of this would be Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41. Acts 15, 36. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. 
Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. So that's what's happening here. Right? It's not that the Apostle Paul was unforgiving or unwilling to forgive the offense that Mark had committed when he deserted and abandoned them on their first journey. But he already deserted them once, and he needs to prove himself before he's going to take him again. Right? He doesn't want to go and commit his life to this man when he's already proven once that he wasn't faithful. So time needs to go on, and he needs to be proven and tested before he is willing to take him with him again. So he's forgiving, but he's also, there are consequences to what, to what happened. And that's the same as we read earlier with David. He confessed his sin, but the sword did not depart from his house the rest of his life. And even the child that was conceived in the adultery, the child died immediately, and then there was turmoil in his house the rest of his days. So there are consequences, both in relationship to God and also in relationship to one another. Right? If someone is embezzling money from the church, well, we're not going to put them over the finances, ever, right? Never, right? If they do it once, that's, that's for the rest of their life. They're not going to be over the finances of the church. It's just the way it is. Uh, and that's not being unforgiving. That's being uh, wise, wise, prudent, shrewd, yes. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 